Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Bible Thumper podcast, where somebody's got to say it. My name is Patrick Hayes, your regular host, and for this episode, you are going to come into my home and come to church with us. I'm the pastor of an independent Baptist church in Grand Junction, Colorado, called the Church of Grace. We are now putting our services up online, and you can find videos on the Bible Thumper podcast, Facebook page, YouTube channel, and you can listen to them anywhere you download your podcasts. So welcome to the Church of Grace. We are currently going through the book of Acts, and tonight we are going to be finishing up Acts chapter 26 and starting Acts chapter 27. So here we go. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Church of Grace. My name is Patrick Hayes, and we are going to jump into Acts chapter 26 again. Last week, we did not get through it. We didn't even get halfway through it. Uh, But tonight, we should be able to finish half a chapter of 26 and get somewhat of the way through chapter 27. So we'll see how we do. Thank you all for coming. Looks like we have no first-time visitors to welcome. So let's just all pray that the AC doesn't give out in the middle of it this evening, because that would be bad. Okay, so last week we were going over Acts chapter 26, and Paul was giving his defense, and in the end he realized, or I guess the folks that were with him realized they uh they weren't going to let him go. They were going to send him to Italy to go and talk to Caesar. And away Paul goes. Now, that's going to happen at the end of the chapter, at the end of chapter 26, where we're still in the middle of Paul's defense that he's giving to King Agrippa. And let's see. Let's start in verses 12 to 18. In Acts chapter 26, we'll read those couple verses and then we'll look at what it says. So Acts chapter 18, or sorry, Acts chapter 26, reading verses 12 to 18. Whereupon I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. So Paul is giving his defense, and he's giving his defense to King Agrippa. And Paul is explaining the story about when he was on the road to Damascus. That's when he met the Lord Jesus. That's when he was called. That was his conversion. And that's when he was commissioned to 
I guess, change teams as a, Jesus basically said, okay, Paul, enough murdering Christians. We're going to have you go ahead and, and, and lead, lead the squad. So that's, that's what happened in this, in this story. And we can go back to the beginning of the book of Acts and, and talk about this. Now, as we go through Paul's defense, there are five key statements that summarize the life of Paul and his defense. And we're going to see if we can point these out as we go. Now, the first one came from last week in verses 4 to 11. Does anyone know? Let's see. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to see if I can find it. Okay, here we go. Verse 5. Verse 5 has the first statement. Can anyone see what it was? They all start with the word I. I lived a Pharisee. Okay, so lived a Pharisee. There we go. So that's what Paul started with. Now, in verses 12 and 13, we see statement number two that summarizes the life of Paul and his defense. What was the second statement? At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven. So what's the famous old-time gospel song? I saw the light. No more in darkness, no more in night. If you don't know that, what does anyone know who wrote that song? Is is nobody a country western fan here? No, way before. Nope. Getting closer to the time. No, although you're all naming people that I really like. No, there there was a father and then later a son of the same name. Okay. Yeah. Hank Williams. Does anyone now you can look this up. This is we're in the weeds here, but this is, you know, I'm giving you your money's worth. Hank Williams wrote more songs than any three country singers combined from him on. Does anyone know what Hank Williams died of? It was alcoholism. Does anyone know how old Hank Williams was when he died? Washington? 29. He was 29 years old, and he was the most successful country music uh, singer in, in history. Yeah. He has a lot of amazing songs. Anyway, I Saw the Light was one of them. So, And it, keep in mind, my research told me that he wrote it. When you get back that old, you find it's hard to tell because, you know, someone wrote a song and 50 different people sing it. And you're like, well, who wrote it? They're like, I don't know. I I heard it somewhere. So I believe it was Hank Williams. Anyway, uh, it's a great song. It's one of my favorites. Okay, so that's verses 12 and 13. I saw the light. Statement number three in verse 14. I heard a voice. You guys should be looking ahead, trying to get the next, next one as we go. Hold on, we're gonna we got to read a few verses before we get to the fourth. Before we get to the the fourth statement. So in verse fifteen, Paul says very clearly that he was wrong, and he was fighting against Jesus, 
And what else does he say? Right? <clears throat> that Jesus is the Messiah. He says, who art thou, Lord? Capital L. So remember, when the thief on the cross asked Jesus to remember him, okay, he was acknowledging a lot in that statement. One of the things he was acknowledging was that Jesus was God. He said to remember him okay, when he was with his father. Well, there's no point in saying that to anyone <laughs> except for the Son of God if you're hanging on a cross crucified next to someone that's about to die. So here Paul is saying, who art thou, Lord? Uh, Jesus, he was uh, acknowledging here um, and learning that Jesus was the Messiah. What does Messiah mean? The chosen one. Good. What's the New Testament word that means the same as the Old Testament word Messiah? What's that? Christ. Very good. Christ in the New Testament in the Greek is the same as Messiah in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. They both mean the chosen one. <clears throat> Anointed one is also synonymous. That one's fine too. Okay, in verse 16, Jesus told Paul that his purpose is to be a witness for him. In verses 17 and 18, I think this is really one of the greatest examples of the gospel that I have ever heard. So let's look at this again. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Now, if we were in an old-fashioned Baptist church, the preacher would have yelled that pretty loud, and everyone would have been screaming, Amen, for a couple of minutes. Okay, look at this description and tell me that there is any better way to describe getting saved. Open their eyes. If you were lost and got saved, you would describe it as being blind and now I see. That is the best description I have ever heard. Turning them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. Think of this. When you think of darkness, the term darkness, how much light is involved with darkness? None. If there's light there, it's not darkness. Darkness is the complete absence of light. And where there is light, guess what? No darkness. Light illuminates. From the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified. And how are you saved? What are the next two words? By faith. That is in me. It's not what you do. It's what you believe. Okay? Jesus did the work. We don't have to do any work. As a matter of fact, if we're counting on work to get us saved, we ain't getting saved. And I always tell people this. <clears throat> if there was not a time in your life where you experienced this, where you can say, I turned from darkness to light, I was blind and now I can see, I went from the power of Satan unto God, then you're not saved. That's it. That's the description. 
there was a time in a saved person's life that was so dramatic that it is impossible to ever forget that experience. Jesus compared it to being born physically. It's an experience that you will remember no matter what else happens in your life. Does anyone know the name Bob Jones? Anyone ever hear the, the name Bob Jones? Bob Jones was a preacher. Bob, There's a Bob Jones University. It is a Southern Baptist University, and it is like, like most schools and universities that were started out and were very conservative, very fun fundamental with the Bible. Over years, they oftentimes get more liberal and more liberal, and it's always disappointing to see that. And, and Bob Jones University is, is quite a bit different than uh, what it used to be. Bob Jones was a preacher that was awesome to hear. I mean, this guy knew the Bible and had no patience for people that didn't believe the Bible. This is it. Don't tell me that this is not God's word. I know what God says. Awesome to hear. Awesome to read. So Bob Jones lost his mind. He got old and what we would call dementia. Okay, they didn't really have, you know, much of a term for it back then. They just said the, you know, the elderly just kind of lost their mind. And every once in a while, if you were a student at Bob Jones University, you would see this old man in his pajamas and slippers shuffling around the campus lost. And he didn't know who he was and he didn't know where he was. And it was really sad, you know, because of who this guy was and, and all the great things he did for God. So anyway, they're going to have a big Bible conference for, I forget what it was. It was, it was an anniversary of the Bible college. It was a big one, you know, so many years, a big anniversary. And so many pastors that were going there wanted to hear from Bob Jones. All the people that were in charge of the school were very hesitant to want to bring him out because they didn't want to embarrass the old man who they all loved. And they talked with his family and they decided, you know what, we're going to bring him out. Everyone wants to see him. We're going to give him a second to, you know, say hello and say something to everyone. They clean him up, they shave him, they put him in a suit and they explain what's going to happen. And he's backstage. <clears throat> a staff member comes out and he says, folks, we have Bob Jones Sr. We're going to bring him out. We want everyone to see him. We want him to be able to say hello. Everyone was there because of the work that this man did. This man changed so many lives. But he said, we don't know what's going to happen. He might not know who he is or where he is. So please understand, it's with a little bit of apprehension that we made this decision, but we thought it would be powerful for all of you to see him. They bring him out. He gets to the pulpit, and he looks around. Everyone is just dead silent. And he said, folks, 
I don't know why I'm here. But when I was a young man, I received the Lord Jesus as my Savior, and it changed my life. And thousands of people jump up, screaming and clapping to hear this guy. He gets startled, totally confused, and doesn't know where he is. And someone comes, and they take him by the arm. They're going to usher him off. He gets halfway off the stage. He breaks free, comes back to the pulpit, and says, When I was a young man, the Lord Jesus saved my soul and changed my life. And everyone rips up into applause, screaming. And he gets confused again. And he doesn't know where he is. And they come and they get him. And they take him off. And a third time, he marches back to that pulpit. And he leans over it. And he pounds on the pulpit and he screams, When I was a young man, the Lord Jesus saved my soul and saved my life. And it was dead silent. That guy lost his mind. He didn't know who he was or where he was or what was going on or why thousands of people from around the world came to see him. But he knew the time that Jesus saved his soul and changed his life. That never left his mind. And when someone tells me that they're saved and I say, great, when did it happen? And they say, I'm not sure, or I don't know, or maybe. I say, buddy, you don't have it. It's darkness to light. It is the power of Satan to the power of God. That's how Paul describes it. It is the most dramatic event in your life. You will never have one that is greater. Amen. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Let's read verses 19 to 21. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and, I, and went about to kill me. Statement number four we find in verse 19. What is it? I was not disobedient. The Lord Jesus called him to do a work, and he obeyed. And when we read through the book of Acts, and let's face it, when we read the entire New Testament, which Paul wrote the majority of, when we come to verse 19 and we read the statement, I was not disobedient, we all say, thank God. Verses 20 and 21, Paul explains the reason the Jews are against him. He preached Jesus to the world. And 
let's not forget that a lot of the Jews got on board. But there were others that wanted to kill him. Let's look at verses 22 to 28. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue on to this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. That Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things before whom I also before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In verse 22, we see the fifth and final statement that Paul said. What is it? I continue unto this day. I think that's a you. With King Agrippa? What's that? Yes. Well, and what we're, um, hold on, we're going to get there in a minute. Okay, so in verse 22, Paul insists that his preaching never deviates from Moses and the prophets. Why is that? Yes, Moses insists that his preaching never deviates from Moses and the prophets. Why is that? What's that? I agree. He never did. Yep, he was teaching things that they were not accepting as true. Now remember, at this time, what did Paul have to preach from? What? Moses and the prophets. That's all he had. Everyone's preaching and teaching should have been from Moses and the prophets. No, the only experience that he had was the time on Damascus Road, his time in Saudi Arabia, his time in heaven, which we'll get to, where he was taught by the Lord. But as far as we know, Paul wasn't present for the life and ministry of Jesus. 
If he was, it's not mentioned. We would assume Paul being a Pharisee and Jesus causing such a commotion that he probably had heard of him. It would be hard to believe that wasn't the case. But there's no direct reference in Scripture talking about Paul, you know, being around during that time. So Paul is saying that his preaching never deviated from Moses and the prophets. Paul just taught a slightly different message. Paul simply said, the Messiah has come, and it's Jesus. All the other Jews at the time, and I can't say all because some, you know, were not waiting for a Messiah. They believed it might have been more allegorical. But the Pharisees certainly were waiting for Jesus. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. That wasn't different for any of the Jews. They just refused to recognize that it was Jesus that was the Messiah. Many of the Jews today are still waiting for the Messiah. Verse 23. Something to remember here is that Jesus is the beginning of the resurrection. Now understand, the idea of someone resurrecting is not unusual in the Bible. There were several people. Jesus brought back to life a few people. Elijah brought back someone to life. Paul brought back someone to life. And and don't let's let's be specific here. God was the one that did it. He just used these people. But when we say the resurrection, understand we're talking about a specific event. Now, when you think of the resurrection as an event, what do you think of? What's that, Carlos? You think of Lazarus. Okay. Nick? Okay. You think of Jesus. And those are all correct. Actually, sorry, Carlos, that's wrong. What's that? Okay, so we have, and, and remember, Lazarus was resurrected. Okay. But what we're talking about is we have Jesus, we have, as Wayne said, us, meaning Christians, right? Those who are born again. So I, I would argue that that is different because it has a different title. That's the resurrection of the dead. Okay, the resurrection of the damned, you could also call it. But the resurrection of life starts with Jesus when he rose from the tomb. And then all those of us who are saved are one day going to rise again. So this happens, and we read about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, talking about the rapture, the second coming of Christ. Understand that that is all one event. And I know that sounds strange because so far it's already been separated by 2,000 years. But it says in verse 23 that Christ should suffer and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead. That's the beginning of what we think of when we say the resurrection. Now, when I think of the resurrection, I think of what Wayne is talking about, which is 
at the second coming when all those who are dead in Christ rise first. The trumpet sounds, the dead in Christ rise, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up together and be with Jesus forever. Well, so there are, <coughs> there's nothing wrong with either term. So the question was, why do we call it the rapture instead of the resurrection? The rapture is, means to be caught up quickly, to be snatched away. And technically, the rapture has happened several, a rapture has happened se several times. So we have uh, Enoch back in the book of Genesis. We have Elijah. We have Paul. Where, and we have John who was caught up to heaven. And when he was in heaven, what was he given? The apostle John. Yes, the book of Revelation. Very good. So there are several times someone has been raptured. We think of the rapture as the event at the end, which is correct, and that is the end of the resurrection, which started with Jesus. Now, someone else had a question, and I want to get to it. You are still resurrected. Nothing in the Bible says anything different about being cremated. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, am, I, I truly believe that God wants us to be buried, and... It is not an explicit command like thou shalt not steal. It is implicit in that every single godly person in the Bible, man and woman, are always buried. So that's where we get the idea from. But in no way does being cremated mean you can't be resurrected and go to heaven. The, if, you, if you think about it, how many times, not even intentionally, has someone been incinerated? There's no remains left. They're just ashes and dust. So now the, if you ask the Jews, the Jews will say, nope, if you're cremated, that's it. You, there's no resurrection. Keep in mind, if you ask the Jews, because I have a tattoo, <laughs> I can't be buried in a Jewish cemetery either. They come up with things that are extra biblical, but nowhere in the Bible does it say that being cremated can keep a Christian from, from heaven. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Who here, Karen, you were in the Navy, right? Okay. And Joe and Rick were in the, and Daniel were in the Navy. So we have four people in the Navy. Joel? Yeah. I was going to say, no, my, ne my son, your nephew was pointing to you. And I was like, no, I think he was in the army. Okay. <clears throat> when someone dies at sea, how do you bury him? That's right. Okay. They go into the sea right? How much of their remains are intact? Yeah. So the idea is, and, and that's really my point, when you're buried at sea, and, and just so you know, okay, bear with me, I'm going to, I'm going to look up a verse. I don't have my laptop with me anymore because we're using it for the video. So now when I look up stuff, I got to do, um, I got to look it up on my phone. Um, having a second one would help. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to. Here we go. Um, and I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead 
that were in it. When the resurrection happens, the fact that someone was buried at sea, and let's face it, what happens to their body at sea? Yeah, animals eat. That's what happens to when an animal dies in the ocean, nothing remains of it. All the other critters, they eat it. There's literally nothing left. That's what they do down to, you know, microorganisms. Everything gets recycled. That doesn't stop what the Bible says, the time when the sea gives up its dead. So that's my point. Buried at sea, cremation. If you were Japanese at Nagasaki and your body was incinerated, none of these things stop the Lord from the resurrection. Stephanie. Not, uh, not nowadays, but absolutely. When you were buried in a wooden box, yes, the wood rots, the animals get to it. You, what, what, what do we, what does the Bible say? Ashes to ashes. Now we added dust to dust as a cute little phrase, but the Bible, that's a Bible phrase, ashes to ashes. Okay. We, how did God form man? Dust of the earth, right? Breathed into him the breath of life. And what do we turn into at the end? Ashes again, turn back into dust, turn back into dirt, okay? So yeah, the, the idea that every Christian, their body is preserved somewhere for the resurrection, it's nonsense. You, we, you know, we all turn into worm food, uh, you know, when we're buried. Now, now, the only reason I said nowadays is because nowadays they have different, yeah, they, they, the caskets that they use actually, you know, they try to seal it and preserve it. Part of the reason for these things is because when the Mississippi floods, guess what happens? All those caskets, yep, all the dirt above them turns soft and all the caskets go boop and start floating around. Yeah, there's, yep, boop, yep, just like that. <clears throat> well, nowadays they actually encase you in concrete. Okay, we are officially in the weeds. Carlos, you got a question? And then we're going to move on. Yeah, go ahead. Bring your comment. Okay. Yes. That that's the point. There nothing there's nothing in the Bible that says God has an issue with any remains of of his chosen. Okay, let's move on. Uh I don't even remember what I just read. 22 to 28, continue on to this day, uh, resurrection. It is an event. Jesus is the beginning of it. There is going to be the rapture, which is what I would consider the end of it. And then there is the, um, okay. Verse 24, Paul gets interrupted and never finishes his sermon in verse 24. In verses 25 to 26, Paul says, this thing was not done in a corner. That's a quote, verses 25 and 26. The, the, these things, uh, this thing was not done in a corner. What does Paul mean in verse 26? Who? Who? Agrippa heard of Jesus. That's what he's saying. Louis, what was your answer? What, what, yes, what did Paul mean? 
Yes. Correct. All of the life of Jesus was not secret. And moreover, everybody in the world knew what happened. Has anyone ever used the phrase common knowledge? Right? That's a pop common phrase. When you're talking to someone, you're like, buddy, this is common knowledge. What does that mean? Yeah, it means we don't need to cite a source for what I just said. Everybody understands this, right? Gravity works. We need blood inside of us. <laughs> these are these things are common knowledge, okay? Um, <clears throat> what was Paul talking about? He was talking about the resurrection of Christ. Now, I've talked about this a dozen times, but I want to go over it again because it's just such an awesome point. What are four things that happened on the cross when Christ died? What are four things that happened when Christ died on the cross? He did say it is finished. And then we got one earthquake. What's another? Veil, veil, tour. Okay, good. Okay, graves open. There, that was the. I'm, I'm including that in the graves opening, and there was one more. Very good. The rocks. Now, Wayne, you might be right. There might have been lightning, but. I just didn't include that because, you know, there's lightning all the time. Whereas, <laughs> so let, let, me, let me read the verses here. There's, there's four verses, Matthew 27, 50 to 53. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. The earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves, after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Veil, earth, rocks, graves. Can we make a an acronym out of those four? V-E-R-G. You guys can think about it. <clears throat> it's pretty close. <laughs> now, this is important because this is what Paul is talking about. When he says to King Agrippa, these things were not done in secret. He's saying, this is common knowledge. Everyone on earth saw this happen, and everyone that didn't see it talked about it. Now, how many of the Jews saw this firsthand? All of them is a pretty close guess. But why? This is a big country. This only happened in one city on one day. How did everyone see it, Joe? It was one of the feast days. And all the men that were able, okay, young, old, everybody, and they would all bring their families if they were able. Okay, oftentimes women wouldn't come because they might have infants or maybe they were pregnant. And let's face it, traveling across a country is not easy. They didn't have Uber or flights back then. So a lot of times they might not make the trip. But the fact was 
every man, old and young, okay, and all the families that could of all the Jews would gather in Jerusalem three times a year, and Passover was one of those times. Everybody saw this happen. Everybody. And the folks that didn't heard about it immediately. And there were Roman guards that were standing there and saw it happen. Not just the Jews. There were Gentiles. There were Roman guards. There were all kinds of people. They all saw it. They all heard about it. And this, this was not one Bigfoot sighting with one grainy black and white picture. That's not what it was. It wasn't one person in Scotland saying, I saw the Loch Ness Monster. It was everybody that saw this. It was common knowledge. Washington. Oh, yeah. They still denied the resurrection. Well, let me ask you this, Wayne. When you run into a secular humanist today, what do they call any act of God? Call it a coincidence, right? No, you don't, but you and I still heard about it, right? As a matter of fact, the most important event in the history of the world, that's, that's not even accurate, in the history of the universe. This is it. This right here, when this happened, this is the central event in the universe. I missed him. I don't care about one fly, except when he's like constantly landing on my face when I'm trying to stand up here. When this event happened, you have to understand this, this might sound ridiculous to you. Every molecule in the universe noticed this. The rocks were ripped in half. Now, four days prior to this, to this event, what happened? What event happened? Bless you. Mom? He came into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling uh, Zechariah 9.9, the prophecy in Psalm 118 when they were singing. When the Pharisees told him, you got to shut these people up. It's not okay that they're singing, this is the day that the Lord hath made, acknowledging you as the Messiah. What was Jesus' response? Nope. Wash? If these people stopped singing, the rocks would cry out. Now, we think of that as poetic language. I don't think we understand that the creation of God would have started singing if those people stopped. That was not flowery, poetic language. Jesus was being literal. He was saying, I'm the creator, and the entire creation is acknowledging what's happening right now. And if these people were not singing, the rocks would start singing. 
because they know what's going on. And that's what happened here. Again, when he died, the rocks were bearing witness. The rocks are smarter than your atheistic neighbor. They knew what was going on. Okay, let's keep going. How does Paul know King Agrippa believes in the prophets? He's an Edomite. I would imagine that King Agrippa probably might have even said so at some time. Now, why would King Agrippa acknowledge Moses and the prophets? Washington? Where did King Agrippa rule? Judea. So who was he ruling over? The Jews. What I'm saying is he acknowledged who they were and that they were true. I don't know if he actually believed, but Paul is saying that he did. Paul isn't asking him. He's stating emphatically. The idea is King Agrippa is not going to start out by telling all the people that he rules over, you guys are all into superstitious nonsense, and I don't believe any of it. Joel? Also, Paul Yeah. Yeah. He saw the way he could have been squirming in his seat. Do we remember what happened in the previous chapter when all of a sudden he cut him off and said, I don't want to hear about this anymore? Now, that wasn't King Agrippa. That was Festus. But that was when Paul was giving his defense to Festus and he started to squirm. He, Yeah, he. that's right. Very good, Wayne. It said that he trembled. Okay, so in the same way, you know, now keep in mind this this is conjecture, okay, but um, he said, <clears throat> or Paul tells King Agrippa that he knows that he believes in the prophets. Whether he did or not, I obviously could not tell you. Okay, in verse 28, what word is wrong with this verse? Verse 28. Everyone goes to the word almost. It's persuadest. Do you know that I can't persuade anyone? I can't do it. Now, now here's the thing. <clears throat> Wayne, do you believe that Jesus is God? Wayne says yes. Okay, Wayne, I'm going to ask you a step a little further. Do you know with 100% certainty, without any doubt at all, that Jesus is God? Wayne, to what degree do you think you could convince someone else that Jesus is God. You say 
you're here at 100%. And I believe you. I'm at 100%. If you had to take someone that was at 0% and you were going to, you're going to use science and you're going to show them that there must be a creator. Okay, and you're going to use history and you're going to show them the validity of the Bible. And you're going to, you're going to just start going down and trying to make a case for Jesus being God. Where do you think you could get that person to? No, no, no. They start at zero. You're real. You're really persuasive. Where do you think you could get them to? Okay. Wayne's thinking 50%. Anyone else think you could do better than 50%? It's not like there's a... What's that? What Stephanie said 90%? Okay, Stephanie, come on up here. Let's get her a microphone. <clears throat> okay, Stephanie thinks 90. Wayne thinks 50. Okay, I'm going to say I could get someone to 95. I have no idea if that's right. I'm just making up numbers. This is, here's the point. I don't care where you can get them to. You cannot get them to a hundred. What is required to get you to a hundred? Faith. You can get close, but it doesn't change the fact that even after you see a miracle of feeding thousands, even after you see a miracle of the dead raising and the blind getting sight, even after you see all these miracles, even after you see Jesus walk on the water out to the boat, you still have to step out of the boat. Even if you believe that you can walk on water, how many of the disciples believed they could walk on water? All 12. How many did it? What's the difference? Faith. With faith, there is a step. The difference is one of them said, I'm going to do it. It worked. Here, Peter was what? 50%, 90%, 95%, right? He was real close to believing, man, I bet I could do it. He's doing it. He said I could do it. He did all that other stuff. When was he 100%? 100%. That when the Christian gets saved, <clears throat> they take a step of faith and they believe. And then what's amazing is you get to the point where Wayne and I are, 100%. I have zero doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. I am more sure that Jesus is the Messiah than that my name is Patrick Hayes. That's how certain I am that Jesus is the Messiah. But you get there with faith. You might get close with reason. I started with reason. I read the New Testament and I was like, this is amazing. 
This is better than any book I've ever read. This is more, this is better wisdom than I've ever come across in my life. I tested everything the new Testament said. Every time I did what Jesus said, my life was better. I continued to do that again and again. I was like, this, this guy's batting a thousand. This is unbelievable. I was working my way up there, but I still had to take a step for a hundred percent. I am at a hundred percent. I can't get you to a hundred percent. I can answer a lot of questions. I'm pretty good at answering questions. I really like answering Bible questions. I've debated atheists and agnostic and I've, I've walked them through. I've led lots of them to Christ. I've seen atheists that I've led to the Lord. They've gotten saved and now they're a pastor, but I couldn't, I can't prove it. It's not a mathematical formula. It's not scientific. It's supernatural and it requires a a step of faith. So the problem that, King Agrippa brought up is persuadest. I can't persuade anyone. It is the job of the Holy Ghost to bring conviction. Verses 29 through 32 tell us that Paul is going to Caesar. And we are at chapter 27. And we even have a few minutes to get into it. So let's jump right in to Acts chapter 27. The did anyone read 27? I know I told everyone to do that for homework like a month ago. <clears throat> the shipwreck narrative in Acts 27 has more words assigned to it by Luke than are found in the entire Genesis account of Scripture. Luke's amazing details of the journey and the shipwreck in the book of Acts include everything from the vessel's nautical headings, the type of storm, the ship's direction of drift, geographical landmarks on Malta, reef configurations, and even the depths of the sea floor. It's all described in Luke's telling of this account. Every detail, including how every man on board, including Paul, survived, is included. In addition to highlighting Paul's heroic actions, Luke's narrative includes details which yielded the clues which recovered the very anchors which were cast out. Okay, let's read the first eight verses, and that'll probably be as far as we get into it tonight. Acts chapter 27, verses 1 to 8. And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners onto one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. And entering into a ship of Adramatium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica being with us. And the next day we touched at Sidon and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go on to his friends to refresh himself. And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we had sailed over the sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. 
And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come over against Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmon. And hardly passing it, came onto a place which is called the Fair Havens, nigh whereunto was the city of Lassie. All right, first eight verses of Acts 27. Verse 1, what individual word in verse 1 stands out? No. No. Nope. 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 Yeah, you're going to get there sooner or later. Nope. You guys are like kindergartners at this point. No, the word is we. Because Luke was with him. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Luke has been with Paul this entire time. Luke, being a physician, we know at the time must have known shorthand, which is why the book of Acts is one of the most accurate historical documents on the planet. He got parts of conversations that almost none of us would have been able to transcribe. The word we means that Luke is tagging along. Now, Luke is believed to be the personal physician for Paul. Some believe that Paul had illness or injuries that required attention that Luke was able to tend to uh, during his journey. Uh, in verse 2, Aristarchus, the name Aristarchus, this gentleman may have been Paul's slave. We don't know. Uh, Aristarchus was mentioned in Acts chapter 19. He was uh, the guy that the mob grabbed hold of. He was with Paul on his last visit to Jerusalem, and he is also mentioned in Paul's letter to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and he is often talked about uh, in, in very endearing terms uh, as his friend and fellow laborer for the Lord. Uh, in verse 3, Julius, the centurion, found a coastal ship leaving Caesarea. So they got on board and covered the 80 miles from Caesarea to Sidon in one day. Now, even though Paul is a prisoner, Julius gives him the freedom in Sidon to visit believers of the area. So Julius trusted that Paul would not flee for whatever reason. Understand that Paul and the other prisoners and the guards, there's a large group of people that are on these boats. I believe that a good number of these people were saved. The reason for this is simple. They were with Paul on a boat with no movies to watch and body internet service. <laughs> and every time we saw Paul locked up in prison, every time we saw Paul around any group, what was he doing? 
Yeah, he was giving the gospel. He was talking to everybody. So I would imagine that he had persuaded many to come to Christ in in this time while he was with them. Because, okay, let me ask you this. Who here has been to prison? My hand's raised. Jail's good enough. Jail or prison. Okay, there we go. Got a couple more hands up. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. The brig, whatever we want. Okay. What is there to do in jail and prison? You talk. In in prison, you're going to be there for longer, so you're going to play cards. You know, maybe there's TV, but you talk because there's nothing else to do. There's a lot of time and not much to do. When you're in transport, when you're in holding, you're just sitting there chit-chatting because there's nothing to do. And I, I would imagine these guys did a lot of talking, and I would imagine that Paul got a bunch of guys saved and then started Bible studies. Wherever Paul went, he started a jail ministry. Because he was in jail more than anyone I've ever met. Okay, let's get to verse 4. I want to just get through verse 8 before before we're done. In verse 4, we had contrary winds. The Jewish belief was that you couldn't really navigate those waters after the Feast of Tabernacles. So they are running out of time here. And we find out by the end of the chapter that they are out of time because they suffer a shipwreck. So they're running out of time. They're running into the stormy season. Now from Sidon to Mira, the voyage became difficult because of these westerly winds. In verses five and six at Mira, Julius, the Roman officer, found a ship going to Italy. So he abandoned the slower coastal ship and put Paul and the others on board a large grain ship from Egypt that carried 276 passengers. The picture of the model ship that I emailed to everybody uh, is a model at the Maritime Museum of Malta. They have a model of the ship that uh, Paul was in. On top of that, I sent you pictures of the anchors that were recovered off of the coast that were the anchors from Paul's ship. How do we know that? How did they know where to look for the anchors? Moses, it was in the Bible. And it was specified exactly where to look. And they went there, and they put on their scuba stuff, and they went down into the water, and they found the anchors. It is. Now... Okay, uh, let's see. Those pictures are also up on our church's Facebook page as well, if anyone wants to uh, take a look. So in verses 7 and 8, notice the amount of detail in the journey. Uh, It really uh, gives us a lot of detail as to where they went, why they went there. And then in verses 7 and 8, we find out that the strong winds, again, hindered their progress so that, quote, many days were required to cover 130 miles from Mira to Nidus. Uh, the, I guess, captain then steered southwest to Crete, passing Samon, and finally uh, struggling into harbor at Fair Havens. It had been a difficult voyage up into this point, and it was only going to get worse. So let's take a quick look on the map. 
So we have, the, these are the details that are given to us up through verse 13. We haven't read up through verse 13, but I can still give you the voyage. So we started on the trip where? From Caesarea, very good. Then we go north into present-day Lebanon, which I believe in the book of Acts, the town was Sidon. From there, we go around Crete, we go through uh, the sea, uh, two different seas of Pamphylia, and I forget the other place, and then we end up landing in, what was the name of it? Uh, sailing near Cyprus, landing in the city of Mira of Lycia. Now, remember, present-day Turkey is broken up into several regions, so Mira was right here, and that was in the region of, I just said it, forgive me, Lycia. And that is where they transfer ships. So now they get into a bigger ship. They sail to Nidus. And then from Nidus, they come to the island of Crete. And this is where they land at Salmon. Then they go to what is called Fair Havens. And there's a city there or a little town, and I forget what it's called, but we're going to get to it at some point. Then what happens is they have to decide, what are we going to do? Are we going to continue on or are we going to stop and call it a day? Because it was the stormy season. And if anyone is what a lot of folks, has anyone here been to a part of the world that has a stormy season? There are monsoon seasons in certain countries and certain places, and th there are certain resorts that just shut down for three months because they're like, well, it just rains for three straight months. So guess what? Nobody comes here. Okay, so you can get a great deal on, you know, <laughs> on those resorts at those times. But you have to understand that anyone that was a sea that made their living on a seafaring vessel they knew the times to travel and not travel. And you just didn't travel at those bad times because ships would get lost. You know, the Bermuda Triangle was real. Everyone feared it. They just stayed out of the way. And that's what they're facing. And Paul's going to talk about this. So, so your homework is to continue reading through to the end of chapter 27. We're going to talk a bunch more about that. And we're going to see the, uh, the shipwreck and what goes on. And what I'm going to ask about from you next week is what time of the year was it? Because the Bible is specific. Well, it was hurricane season, but we could even, we could even go down to uh, the month, possibly the week of the year. So the Bible's specific about it, but you have to do a little bit of math. And if you want to be able to answer that question, you're going to need to go to Leviticus chapter 23, and if you need a hint, you can call me, and I will, in no uncertain terms, ask you a series of very difficult questions to guide you in the direction of the hint. So Leviticus 23, the details in Acts chapter 27, will tell you within less than 30 days of when this was in the year. So that's it. Let's have a brief word of prayer and we can go eat brownies.